right, good morning. The tech person was not here and the microphone is not on, so but they're calling. So I'm just going to try and shout for the first couple of minutes until they get here. So hopefully you can see me, I mean, well hopefully you can see me, but hopefully you can hear me in the back. Um, so my name is Kindy DeLong and this is a three-day class on men and women sharing church leadership, a scriptural path. Um, and what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk hopefully for about 40, 45 minutes, and leave 15 minutes for questions at the end in conversation. Um, so is there anyone who's with us for the first time? That has been, okay, so we have some, some folks, so welcome. Um, so I, I thought that might be the case, so I wanted to kind of introduce what I've been doing, and it'll be a little bit of a review if you've been here already. Um, people have told me over the years that they would love to see women become more involved as spiritual leaders at their churches but they get hung up on some passages in Paul. Um, and I'm sure you've heard this. <laughs> and so I started developing this talk, which has normally been in a 45 minute version and I expanded it to a three, uh, kind of a three day version for this lecture. And the goal of this talk is to walk through scripture together, to chart an interpretive path through scripture. Um, and I made the point at the beginning of the class on Wednesday that whenever we read and interpret scripture, we take a path we choose where to start and what we will read in the text, what we will read first, what we will read second. We take a path. We decide what we're going to focus on. We decide how we will read. This is unavoidable. Every time we read scripture and seek to apply it to our lives, we do this. Um, we make decisions as we go. We slow down. We speed up. And so what this class is offering is a path through scripture on this subject. And it's not the path through scripture. So I want to be very clear about that. I'm offering a path uh, and recognizing that there are alternatives. This is the path that I take through scripture after a lot of prayer, contemplation, and study. And from my point of view, from my perspective, this path takes us most fully through the heart of our shared life together as followers of Christ. And that's why I'm excited to share it with you. But I don't expect that everyone will agree with me. Recognize <laughs> that. Um, so the topic that we've been talking about for these three days is our shared life together as human beings created in the image of God and redeemed in Christ. And then how we live out that shared life together with regard to leadership in the church. And I am convinced that where we start on this path makes a huge difference as to where we end up. And so on Wednesday in this class, we began with the big picture of scripture, what I am calling, I'm using a metaphor, and I'm calling that big picture of scripture the forest. So as we're walking through the landscape of scripture, I don't want to start with the trees or the little plants, I want to start with the big picture, the forest. And what we saw in the forest is that women are created as fully human and not a class of people in Genesis 1-2. People are created. And God values women as fully human in the Old Testament, and we see the same thing with Jesus in the New Testament. Women are redeemed as fully human in Christ. Women live and worship together with men in a community of Christ that reflects the original partnership and mutuality of creation. Then the church in the New Testament celebrates the arrival of the Spirit on all people, young and old, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, 
They're creating a community in Christ in which there is no separation, no sense of humans being divided into classes of people, but a community that restores that original sense of the mutuality of humanity and creation. No male, female, no slave, free, no Jew, Gentile. Now, of course, <clears throat> the church and today, we must, the church in the first century and today recognizes that our lived experience in the world is different, sometimes based on whether we're male or female or in certain situations, right? But that's different than saying we are essentially different as human beings. Um, and this church is led then by men <clears throat> and women who are empowered by the Spirit as the Spirit chooses. That was Wednesday. That was the forest. On Thursday, we looked at the trees, what I'm calling the trees in my metaphor. And that is women in Israel and the early church who were described by one writer, ancient writer, as more spirited than lions. And they lived out the gifts that God had given them by serving God's people in leadership. And we looked at examples of women who, a woman who is called an apostle, a deacon, leader, manager, church ministry patrons, church and ministry patrons. Women who give verbal testimony and speak prophecy. Women who are sages, who serve in the temple, who teach God's people, who lead public... Whoa, there we are. <laughs> Thank you. And we have sent. <laughs> We're glad I don't have to do that for 45 minutes. Um, who lead public prayer. Uh, who are ministers and evangelists. Who Paul calls co-strugglers, co-prisoners. Women who risk their necks in the gospel, lion-spirited women. And these women are like trees that flourish in the forest of scripture. They grow, serve, and lead in an ecosystem that is well-suited to them. If these women were violating a principle of male spiritual leadership, we would expect that they would be criticized. But in fact, they are praised. We have spent two days looking at how God sees, loves, redeems, and gifts people as people, not classes of people. And we have seen men and women sharing leadership, especially in the churches that appear in the New Testament letters. And so all of this, my, in all of this, my point has been, there is no theological principle of male spiritual leadership. Did we lose the... Yeah. Mike, oh, and we also lost the tech person. <laughs> Would someone mind letting her know that we lost the mic? Thank you. Right, is it still off? Yes. Okay. All right. So my point has been that there is no theological principle of male spiritual leadership in Scripture. That is a different way of walking through the forest of Scripture than I learned growing up. And I recognize that. It's different. And now, in this journey, we come to a handful of passages in Paul's letters that when we've walked through Scripture the way we have in the last two days, they seem out of place in this larger picture of shared leadership because they seem to limit women's roles. But before I want to, and that's, those are the texts we're going to look at today. But before we start looking at those texts, I want to make a couple of points by way of introduction. Thank you. Um, I started to make this first point that I'm going to mention right at the end of yesterday's class, 
We were looking at these lion-spirited women in Scripture, but some people might object. Well, okay, there are some women in Israel who are leaders, and there are some women in the early church who are leaders, but aren't most of the leaders in Israel, and aren't most of the leaders in the early church men? And yes, that does seem to be true as far as we know. But that is because there is another competing landscape in Scripture that we see reflected in Scripture, and that is the world in which the people of the Old Testament and the New Testament lived. And this world has been called by sociologists an advanced agrarian sociological system. I want to, um, sorry? No, advanced, <laughs> agrarian. advanced agrarian sociological system. So what you can see up here on this chart, if you can see that it's a little bit small, but you have um, a kind of depiction of what class, what social class looks like in this kind of system. An advanced agrarian sociological system, um, pretty much, well, agrarian is from 3000 BC to 1800 um, AD or CE. So you can see that well, we're talking about 5,000 years of human history. Advanced agrarian is, is once people had, the, had iron tools. So if you, if you know, you can put that together. Um, so you can see that this system really has dominated human culture for a very long time. It is thought by sociologists to be the most hierarchical and stratified human culture that has existed in, in, as compared to other models. So this shows what this stratification looks like with regard to class, social class. Notice up here there's this little dot, that's the ruler. Um, and then you have the governing class, not very many people, uh, kind of lower governing class here, retainers and priests. There's really very few people who are what today we would call the middle class. You have some merchants here, artisans here, um, and you have a huge group of peasants, and then what unfortunately are called the expendables um, at the bottom. And um, at the time of Jesus, the entire Mediterranean world falls into the category of an advanced agrarian society. Jews, Greeks, Romans, Syrians, you pick who they are, everybody falls into this. So this world was incredibly stratified, as you can see here. Now, it doesn't say this on the chart, but slavery was a the, the practice of slavery was foundational to this system. And so was a strict hierarchy that can be seen with regard to age and gender. So here's a short version of what this looked like with regard to gender for women. Marriage was expected and generally arranged. It was an economic transaction, often with some kind of dowry or bride price. Women married young, generally 12 to 14 in age. Men married around 18. Men ruled in all spheres of human life, the state and the household. In the household, the patriarch, or in the Roman world, he was called the paterfamilias, ruled women, slaves, and children in the household. If you were with me in this class on Wednesday, you already saw a glimpse of this in that uh, quotation from Aristotle. This view of the household was not just an ideal. In many cases, it was the law of the land. Women, enslaved people, and children were always embedded in a man, and for women that was usually a father or a husband, sometimes a male relative, other male relative. Women were not, and enslaved people and children, were not considered people in their own right. Now there were occasional exceptions. 
So we talked yesterday about the older wealthy widow in the system could be some, could uh, sort of escape some of this hierarchy a little bit. But depending on what man you were associated with uh, showed where you would fit on this chart, right? So if you're the wife of the ruler, the emperor, you have a ton of privilege compared to other people in the system. If you're this enslaved person who's very close to the emperor, you also could have a lot more access to power and privilege than if you were an enslaved person down on this level, right? Same with women, right? So women down here are going to be at the bottom of the peasants, um, but a woman up here is going to be a lot higher than a woman down here, right? So you can imagine how that works. A woman's responsibility was to serve her husband and provide him children. There was rigid division of labor based on gender. Generally speaking, women did not hold positions of authority, and few of them received educations. Women had no, or in some cases very few, rights related to property. Divorce was generally a man's prerogative, and women were generally limited to the private sphere. They could be active and productive in what was seen as the private sphere, mostly in the home, but the public sphere was understood to be a man's domain. In some places, women were totally secluded. I think I'm hearing a microphone coming, maybe. In other places and times, women had a more public role. But even those women who dared to step out of this system and take on a public role, and sometimes they did, they had to do this with great caution because they risked bringing shame upon their families because the public sphere was the man's domain. So they had to be very careful about how they did this. And double standards and stereotypes were used to reinforce all of the stratification. Testing. OK, great. So, whoa. <laughs> so my point is that the lives of women were highly constrained, restricted to certain roles, and this had not changed much for 2,000 years and would not change again for another 2,000 years. Everyone who appears on the pages of the New Testament lives in this world and are constrained by it. They could no more escape it than you or I can be in Los Angeles, California and escape the reality of traffic. Can I get an amen? Yeah. <laughs> it was the air they breathed. And so it is not at all surprising that the cultural realities of the advanced agrarian world are reflected in the pages of the New Testament. Leadership in Israel in the early church was lived out in a cultural context of what we can call patriarchy, for short. And so most leaders in Israel and the church were men. Now, I want to say, when I say the word patriarchy, I have gotten some feedback from some brothers, that that makes them feel uncomfortable like I'm blaming men. So I just want to put that out there and say, the word patriarchy, the way I'm using it, just describes a system, a hierarchical system in which men are in charge. Men are as much uh, bound by that system as women, right? It's not, like, it's not men's fault, it's just the system. So I, I just want to put that out there because I've gotten that feedback. Okay, so it's important to say, though, that even though we see this reality show up on the pages of scripture, to remember the last two days of this class that these realities are also challenged by scripture, right? Not all leaders in the early church in Israel were men. And in fact, everything we've looked at in the last two classes challenges the stratification
education and dehumanizing aspects of the advanced agrarian society. What my friend Sarah Barton in her powerful sermon last night called King Culture. Scripture challenges this, but even so, we shouldn't be surprised to find a few glimpses of that world here and there in the landscape of Scripture. And um, I think that's at least one thing that is happening in the passages in Paul's letters that seem to place limits on women's roles, and that's where we're going next. So, in thinking about these passages in Paul's letters, and one of First Peter, um, I was trying to figure out how to fit them into my metaphor. I came up with the idea of mushrooms. Now, no metaphor is perfect, so it's just a metaphor. But I chose mushrooms for two reasons. First, if you're out in the forest, mushrooms can be healthy and tasty if you examine them carefully. We've all heard stories of people who died after eating what they thought were edible mushrooms in the forest. We can make tragic mistakes about mushrooms. Mushrooms in a forest should be not eaten carelessly and examined closely. Second, most mushrooms are small, and the texts we're going to look at today are small. I've known that they were small for a very long time, but I decided yesterday to actually do some math. There are eight passages, three of which, if you're looking just at the gendered language, are only nine words in total. Mm-hmm. when it comes to gender. The others are a little longer. So I did this math. Let's see if I'm in the right place. Yes. 686 words out of 184,600 words in the New Testament, which comes out to be 0.3%, not even 1%. Now, of course, math is not exegesis, so <laughs> this is just a fun fact. But what I mean really by small is that these passages, when we walk through scripture the way we just did, are dwarfed by the forest and the trees. And I think this is especially true as the closer we look at them. So let's begin. There are eight passages that I see. Three on marriage, five on leadership in the church. And even though they are small, a whole lot has been written on <laughs> So I could not hope to cover all angles or aspects in the time that we have together. Instead, I want to offer a few things to consider as we think about examining these texts more closely, these mushroom texts. Things to consider. First of all, words and text. What I mean are the meanings of the words used, the way they are translated, and in some cases, the manuscripts because you probably know that our printed Bibles are based on handwritten manuscripts, and all of this can be considered. We've already seen how we need an investigation of words and text when it comes to passages about women. If you remember, in Genesis, the word helpmeet, if you really look at it, is instead something like strong partner. Phoebe is sometimes translated as a servant instead of a deacon, and as a helper instead of a prostatus, which means leader, manager, or patron. And then, of course, yesterday we had the fun experience of looking at Junia's sex change by translation. So why is this? Because why did this happen? Because the Bible is not only written in advanced agrarian culture, but it has been interpreted and translated in advanced agrarian culture. Translators and interpreters don't work 
in a vacuum, they are affected by the world around them, and they have been affected by the competing landscape. I'll just give you one example, and it has to do with Junia. There's this amazing circular logic when Junia's name was changed to Junius um, by uh, the people who are printing the Greek text. <coughs> now, Junius is interesting because while it's a conceivable name for a man in the ancient world, there are actually no examples of this name. <laughs> it, it's not really there. And so here's one interpreter in, in the mid-1900s, one book, trying to wrestle with this. This is, a, this is actually a dictionary. And, the, and it says, Junius, the male name, is not found elsewhere. The possibility from a purely lexical point of view that this is a woman's name, Junia, and then he says, and by the way, ancient commentators took Andronicus and Junia as a married couple. So he's saying the ancient Greek native speakers who read these ancient Greek texts thought Junia was a woman. But all that aside, it is probably ruled out by context. So what does he mean by context? Well, what he means is that since she is an apostle, she can't be a woman. Of course, the great irony is, in the immediate context of Romans, there are numerous examples of female leaders in, in the early church. Um, and we could also look at this statement by F.W. Gingrich. Grammatically, Junia might be feminine. Though this seems inherently less probable, partly because the person is referred to as a possible. Right? So you see that? Um, and so uh, Eldon F., who wrote the book, a really great book on this, uh, summarizes this logic this way. Because a woman could not have been an apostle, the woman who is here called an apostle could not have been a woman. <laughs> <laughs> so Julia, the female apostle, offended certain interpreters who were working in this advanced agrarian system, and so they accented her right out of the story. Um, and this actually happens in certain handwritten manuscripts in the New Testament that are later than our earliest manuscripts. For example, Prisca, Nympha, Syntyche, Junia were all changed to masculine names in certain manuscripts. And also, remember we talked about how Prisca was often mentioned first? Those were often reversed in manuscripts. So the pressure, my point is, the pressure of the competing landscape is intense. And this is one reason why we need to examine these passages closely. Okay, so a second thing to consider, and that is the literary context and situation of what's happening in these letters and what's going on in their communities. So that's why I have a little cell phone up there, and I'll explain that in a minute. Reading Paul's letters is like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You may have heard this as metaphors used a lot to talk about Paul's letters. In other words, he doesn't just sit down and write a letter out of the vacuum of his mind into the, um, or even the, the inspiration of the spirit, right? Like, in straight out to this church. Instead, he's dealing with their issues and their problems. They've written to him, or they, he's heard about something that's happened, and he's responding back to it. And so those who study Paul's letters uh, say that we have to pay attention to what's going on in the other side of the conversation, or we'll miss something important, or we'll misinterpret what Paul is saying. And they call this mirror reading. It's like holding up a mirror to the text and trying to see what's going on behind the text in the real community. If we don't do this, now it's hard to do sometimes, and, and, and we could do it wrong, but if we don't do it at all, we don't listen, we really risk misunderstanding. Let me just give you one very simple example. In Galatians 5.2, Paul says, listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. 
Now, if you just took that passage completely out of its context in Galatians, I would think that about half the men in the United States would be a truck. Right? But we know if we look at the text that what he's dealing with there is a specific uh, a way of thinking about circumcision that is required to become a follower of Christ, the Gentiles basically have to become Jews. Now, if, so if we look at it closely, we realize that's what's going on. That's what I mean about this back and forth conversation. If we don't have that back and forth conversation with the community, we could very easily misunderstand. And then the third thing to consider is the cultural context. And we've already talked about the social realities. So but what we have to think about is how, are they, how might those social realities be reflected in the text. Okay, so that takes us then to the, let's do the three marriage passages. These are in Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Peter. And they are passages that say things like this. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. That's Ephesians. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's Colossians. 1 Peter. Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands. Uh, sorry, that was Colossians, and now it's First Peter. Why is in the same way except the authority of your husbands? Now, I can't cover all aspects of the three, these three texts because it would be a lot to do today. But let's look at a few things. First, culture. If you look at all three passages, you will see, and I have a little chart here, that they all address the same sets of people in the ancient household. Husbands and wives, slaveholders and enslaved people, fathers and children, except First Peter doesn't have the father and children. Historians refer to these kinds of texts as household code passages, and they are found outside the New Testament as well as inside the New Testament. And what they mean by this is that these passages reflect a lived reality of ancient Christians um, dealing with the structure of the ancient agrarian household. And absolutely, you see a principle of male leadership. But in my view, this is a cultural and legal principle in the ancient world, not a theological principle. As we've seen in looking at the advanced agrarian society, men were quite literally and by law the heads of households. This was the reality in the social world of ancient Christians. Now, if we look again at the Aristotle passage, right, that we looked at a couple of days ago, we see exactly the same four sets of people, right? You see that? Free men who rule over women, enslaved people, and children. And there are lots of other passages that I could show you many examples of this from the ancient world. So what the New Testament writers in these three marriage texts are seeking to help Christians understand how to live the mutuality of being in Christ, how to live in the forest when the forest is embedded in and affected by a world that is very, very different. So let's look at a couple of the words in the passage. I'm, I'm just for illustration, we're just going to do Ephesians. So notice that Ephesians begin, be subject, begins, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. It does not begin, wives, be subject to your husband. Right? It says, be subject to one another. And that verse then governs the entire passage. Husbands, wives, slaves, the enslaved people, slaveholders, fathers, children. So the, the, the ideal here is a kind of mutual submission. Then it goes on to say, wives to your husbands. Now, by the way, be subject is not in Greek. You're relying on the verb that is in the first. So that's why I crossed it up, just so you could see that. Right? So wives to your husbands as you are to the Lord. 
Um, and he goes on to talk about the husband being the head of the wife. Um, just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives and everything to their husbands. What is surprising culturally about this passage is not that the women are in submission to their husbands. That is the social reality. It's just as if a minister wrote to a church today, this might not be very popular for a minister to do, but let's say a minister wrote to a church today and said, pay your taxes in submission to Christ in a way that's pleasing to Christ. I think we would all understand that the minister means that since taxes are a reality and we have to pay them, we should do it in a Christian way. We would not think this minister meant that it is our Christian duty to pay taxes in all times and places, even if we were fortunate enough to live in a system where taxes weren't required, if such a thing can be imagined. Okay? So, what I'm suggesting is that in the household code passages, the letter writers are not saying that Christian marriage ought to be structured with men in authority and women in submission. Rather, they are saying to their Christian communities that since this is a reality, let's do this in a Christian way. With women submitting the way we are all called to submit to Christ, and men using their culturally bestowed power in the way that Christ used his power to serve and to love. The theological principle here is not male authority or leadership. It is love for neighbor and submission to Christ. We could say lots more than that, but i got to move on for sake of time to um, the church leadership slides. So uh, we need to recognize um, that the, when we come to these, the next text, that we're going to be looking at this context, what's going on in Paul's community. Um, real letters addressing real life situations. And when we do that, we have three communities to think about. Corinth, Ephesus, and Crete. So if you think about the whole picture of the early church and how it spread out over the Mediterranean world, we're looking at texts in three communities, very specific communities. So let's look first at Corinth. Uh, the text on women's speech in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, it says that women should be silent in the churches um, and that they are not permitted to speak but should be subordinate as the law also says, if there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. <coughs> now, in the case of Corinth, this passage is quite puzzling. And the reason is the literary context. If you go back three chapters to 1 Corinthians 11, we looked at it yesterday. What are the women doing there? Okay, and prophesying. Um, so I think the literary context itself gives us a clue that when we see the word silent, we ought not think of this as some kind of universal silence, but some kind of specific silence that has to do with something specific going on in court. And notice that the kind of speech we're talking about is what? Questions. Questions. Right. So, um, it would be out of keeping with the context of the letter to interpret this passage as a universal call to silence, even for the women in Corinth, let alone for all women in all places at all times. The literary context encourages us to understand the silence is not absolute, it's a particular kind of speech. Notice also the word shame. 
Uh, shame is a culture And it was shameful in this society for women to speak publicly. And in this passage, there is some reference to people coming in from outside. So there may be that cultural dynamic going on. There's one additional dynamic to look at, and that is the situation uh, that's going on in the worship of the Corinthians. If you look at this passage where it fits into 1 Corinthians 14, it is surrounded by a section on order in worship. Right? So you can see here, uh, oops. Oh, I'm, I'm all of a sudden lost. <laughs> Hold on. I don't know how that happened. Okay. There we go. So you can see that uh, that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace at, in verse 33, and then at the end, 40, all things should be done decently in order. So there's a larger concern here, not just for women's speech, but for other kinds of speech that was going on in the community that was disrupting the, the, the worship. And so women are being asked to speak in such a way that it's not disrupting. Maybe what they're doing is interjecting questions into the service, into the worship in a way that is disruptive, but also maybe bringing shame upon their families in some way. Um, and so the theological principle here is the reputation of the community with outsiders for the sake of the gospel and worship that glorifies God because it is orderly. All right, let's turn to women's teaching and authority in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 2.12. This is arguably the verse that most of the traditional position hinges upon, I, I would say. I don't know if everyone agree with that, but um, I think that's probably true. Um, so let's look first at the words. Now, in the little box on the left, you can see the NRSV. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Um, this word silence is not the same word we just saw in 1 Corinthians. It's a different word, hesukia, and it really means something more like peacefulness. It's not silence. Uh, that's pretty, that's pretty, I don't think that's really arguable, right? That, that, that's just a, a lexical dictionary kind of thing. Now the word often teo, you see that in the fourth line, is also interesting. It is extremely rare. Because there's only, not only is it not in the New Testament, it's like four times in all of Greek literature, and nobody knows exactly what it means. Um, but after looking at this a lot, I, I, I think the best sense of it is to grab authority. Sometimes people will say usurp authority, but we don't use the word usurp so much anymore. So grab authority. Take authority away from someone else. Um, so those are the words. Let's, let's keep that in mind, because I think even, even that simple Sense of the, the sense of the words may change for us a little bit uh, how we see this. Um, and then let's look at the situation from what's going on in Ephesus. As you may know, if you've studied First Timothy, that one of the big problems that's happening in Ephesus during this time is false teaching, and it's false teaching that is focused on myths and endless genealogies. Um, so that's also something to keep in mind. And let's go to thinking about culture. Notice that this passage, which is in blue on the slide, is embedded and surrounded by an interest in culture. So you have the words modestly, decently, 
in verse um, 15. And I think I can zoom into that so you can see that, yeah, modestly and decently. And at the end, women are to dress that way. And at the end, you have a return to the instruction of modesty. Modesty is a cultural word. And you might be thinking, well, what does women's teaching authority have to do with modesty? I think when we think of modesty today, we have to think of the of dress or something like that. But actually, those, these two concepts were bound very closely together in the ancient world. Let me just give you one example. This comes from Plutarch, his uh, writing Moralia, and he's writing not too long after the time of Paul. And uh, he's looking back on ancient Greece, and he's telling the story of a woman who, um, she's out in public, and her garment slips, so then her arm is revealed. And someone says to her, oh, a lovely arm. And she says, doesn't say, oh, thank you. She says, oh, but it's not for the public. And she pulls her cloak back up. And then this Plutarch says about this woman, he says, not only the arm of the virtuous woman, but her speech as well ought to be not for the public. And she ought to be modest, exact same word, and guarded about saying anything in the hearing of outsiders since it is an exposure of herself. For in her talk can be seen her female's character and disposition. So you can see in this how a woman's speech is almost like a public disrobing in the ancient world. Um, and so you have that same kind of sense of modesty in this passage. Now, like I said, these passages are complex and there's a lot been written on them, so you know, um, there's more that could be said. But I think that uh, what we have in 1 Timothy is that something is going on in Ephesus involving these women, some women. It, it may involve false teaching, um, teaching about innocent and endless genealogies. It may involve some kind of teaching that is causing them to grab or usurp authority over men in an unchristian way. Um, and and, it, and all of this is immodest in the culture. And so the writer is saying, stop doing this. These women are receiving shame on themselves and on the community. Um, and it sounds like they have a long way to go to learn about what true servant leadership is in Christ. And so he says to them, learn in quietness. So you have to learn before you teach. So the theological principle I see in this passage is humility that accepts instruction and correction, which is an important theological principle for all of us, men and women. All right, and our last passages are leadership and Ephesus, uh, in Ephesus and Crete. Here we have three passages that, um, as I'm sure you are familiar with, lay out uh, a kind of um, a kind of picture of what a good leader looks like, and the leadership words are deacon, bishop, and elder. Uh, so you have deacons in Ephesus, bishops in Ephesus, elders in Crete. Um, so I just want to say a couple of things about this. First, let's start with the deacon passage. Um, it's possible that it would be better actually to put this passage um, on in, in yesterday's talk because in the middle of the deacon passage, the language switches over to women. 
So the writer's talking about deacon, and all of a sudden starts talking about women. The word, um, the word is, is gune in um, Greek, and it can be translated women or wives. So if you translate it wives, then we're talking about the wives of the deacons. But if you translate women, we're talking about female deacons. And if that's the case, then I would say this passage actually I should talk about yesterday, right? As an example of women deacons. And of course we did see that uh, Phoebe, for example, is called a deacon. Um, and so that would be consistent with that. Um, so if we go from deacons then to look at the passages on bishops in Ephesus and elders in Crete, um, the, the language in all three passages, the only truly gendered language, there's, there's a hints of like, house, I mean, household leadership, you know, suggests also kind of male, uh, male, but in terms of like literally gendered language, there's one phrase, and it's a man of one woman, or a one woman man. Um, and that's why I said there's only nine words in those passages. Um, and so it does appear that in Ephesus, bishops were, that the, the assumption is that bishops would be men, and in Crete, the assumption is that elders would be men. Um, and so I want to point out that we also have a concern in this passage for how the church is thought of and how its leaders are thought of by outsiders, right? Um, and so I think we, we shouldn't be too surprised um, that in a situation where these people might be interacting with outsiders and particularly representing the church to outsiders um, in a kind of formal way, that this would need to be a respectable, and I probably will add free, although the passage doesn't say that, but it does talk about managing a household, and an enslaved person did not manage their household. Um, person, man in that culture, right, who would be respected um, by the outside world. Um, but I will also point out that there are other passages about <coughs> elders that don't have this gender language. So for example, even in 1 Timothy, towards the end of 1 Timothy, we see a picture of older men and older women. It's the same word as elder in the, in the community um, and how they ought to be treated. And then the, the writer, you know, Paul keeps writing, uh, and about 16 verses later, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. There's no gendered language there. So we don't know. Uh, in our tradition, we have put bishops and elders together as the same position, but that's an interpretive move. So we don't know exactly what's going on in, first, in Ephesus and 1 Timothy. Um, and I will point out that elsewhere in the New Testament, elders are mentioned without any kind of gender language. Elders praying and anointing sick in James. Elders are shepherds who lead by example and with humility in 1 Peter. Nothing about gender. And so, to conclude, and then open up for discussion, I want to summarize the theological principles that I've seen in these passages. Love for neighbor, submission to Christ, worship that glorifies God because it is orderly, reputation with outsiders for the sake of the gospel, humility that accepts instruction and correction. We've also seen some practical cultural concerns, social dynamics of hierarchical households. How do you live in a household that's structured this way as a Christian? Whether you are a woman 
enslaved person or the patriarch or paterfamilias yourself. False teaching is a concern. Modesty is a concern. Leaders who are respected is a concern. In scripture, we have the theological principle of God creating, redeeming, and gifting humans, not classes of humans, but the church lived in a world that operated according to a very different model, and that affected every aspect of people's lives. So, in three communities, in Corinth, Ephesus, and Crete, we see these local communities living in the real world and dealing with practical considerations related to gender, order, modesty, and interaction with outsiders. But as one scholar puts it, these texts speak to the circumstances in these communities and are not absolute for all places or all times. I want to conclude with the words of Frederick Douglass, a man who escaped enslavement in the pre-Civil War South and went on to become a prominent activist, author, and public speaker before and after the war. And the words I'm going to share with you were spoken by him in a speech before the Civil War. They refer to the letter to Philemon. In that letter, Paul is returning an enslaved man who has run away to his owner. If we pay close attention to the situation of the letter and its rhetoric, we see that Paul is asking the slaveholder to treat Onesimus, whom Paul calls as his son and his own heart, as fully human. Paul urges Philemon to welcome Onesimus as a beloved brother, to welcome him as he would welcome Paul, and to do even more than Paul asks. But... In the culture of the American South, slaveholders could not see this in Philemon. They saw only what was to them the clear teaching of scripture that Paul was sending a runaway slave back to his master. And so Frederick Douglass says this. In the United States, men have interpreted the Bible against liberty. They have declared that Paul's epistle to Philemon is full proof for the enactment of that hell-black fugitive slave bill which has desolated my people for the last 10 years in that country. They have declared that the Bible sanctions slavery. What do we do in such a case? What do you do when you are told by the slaveholders of America that the Bible sanctions slavery? Do you go and throw your Bible into the fire? Do you sing out no union with the Bible? Do you declare that a thing is bad? because it has been misused, abused, and made bad use of? Do you throw it away on that account? No. You press it to your bosom all the more closely. You read it all the more diligently and read from its pages that it is on the side of liberty and not on the side of slavery. I wanted to conclude with these words of Edward Douglas because he sees so clearly that we don't just read the Bible. We make decisions about how to read the Bible. When we read and interpret scripture intending to live it out, we take a path, we choose where to start, where we will go next, what to focus on, and how we will read. It is simply a fact, and it is unavoidable. The path that I have taken in this three-day class, which, by the way, I have to give credit, draws on so many different authors, and you know, I couldn't stop to give credit to all of them. But the path that I've taken is not the path I was taught growing up. But I believe it is a reasonable path that takes Scripture seriously. Or in Frederick Douglass's words, it presses Scripture close and reads it diligently. And it is my own view, you can disagree, that it is high time for more of our congregations to explore this kind of path through Scripture. In the United States today, we do not live as the early Christians did, 
in a strictly hierarchical advanced agrarian society, nor do we live in an oppressive regime that depends on this hierarchy and squashes any movements that resist it. That is not our context. And this means that the church now has the exciting opportunity to re-examine these mushroom passages carefully, to reclaim the trees by honoring the examples of so many women of faith who have led according to their gifts and to live more fully in the forest. Mm -hmm. To put this in another way, we have an opportunity to live out more fully the deeply biblical foundational principle that humans, men and women together, should share servant leadership in the church. It's my own personal prayer that more and more of our congregations will. So, and now we'll open for a question. But anyway, it is just a whole hard culture, and this is what you're dealing with. 
obviously thing here, you know, she's in a culture uh, that reflects this more advanced agrarian world, and, and she's experienced those tensions. Um, and I, I would say, when, when I say we live in the United States and we're not deeply embedded in an advanced agrarian world, there's still lots of vestiges of it in the US, right? So, I mean, you heard Sarah Martin's uh, sermon you know, last night. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, you can even go back, and I do this in one of my classes, we go back and we look at advertisements um, from the 1950s, and they're literally like a woman laying down on a, a as if she's a rug, and a man with his foot, foot on her head. This is advertising like a pair of slacks for the men, right? So this is, you know, or, you know, this was 1950s, right? So these culture does not change overnight. They don't take 4,000 years of this. It's just in this 4,000 years old, that's like the Titanic, right? You don't turn it on and on. So we're just seeing, but I have to say in the US, we've benefited from a lot of Christian women who have advocated, and men at their sides, who have advocated for, um, for a, a more fully human understanding of humanity and the gender. Um, you haven't had a chance to ask that. That's okay. I have actually oh, okay. two questions. <laughs> yeah. right. uh, they have to do with the cultural realities, and then the other one was just a clarification on the Greek. Because uh, so one you said about the cultural realities often reflected in the New Testament. When you say that, you're specifically thinking about uh, the Roman culture and the Greek culture, but, but you're not really referring to something like the Egyptians or the Africans, which we don't have that much writing for anyway, because the Egyptians, there were women rulers, and the, the whole uh, classification was different in different continents. Yeah. So you're specifically referring to these Western subcultures. Yes, in a way, um, but also sociologists would argue that the advanced agrarian hierarchical model is throughout, right? So notice that you said they're rulers, women rulers in Egypt, um, so that would be the exception. Um, even in, in Greek and Roman culture, there are women that step out of this. Um, and, and, but, but the point is, they have to do that with great caution because it's recognized by everyone that this is not the norm, right? So, yeah. Uh, yes, advanced agrarian culture has different flavors in different places. Okay. Yeah. And then the other one was just a clarification in Greek, because you used Ephesians 5, 21 to 24, uh -huh. and you crossed out the subject. Yeah. I didn't get that. Yeah, okay, so the verb, the only verb is in verse 1. Oh. So submit yourselves one to another, and then it says women to your husband. So you have to supply the verb. Mm -hmm. um, and so the translators supply that verb, but by doing so, it, it actually strengthens the sense of the, that the writer is telling them to submit rather than saying uh, what, the, the, what the principle here is a mutual submission, okay. right? Um, but the way we live that out in our world is obviously by law, women submit to their husbands, but what he's, the, the surprising thing about the passage really is that he's calling men to love their wives in the way that Christ did, which is totally different. So there he's really, really pushing culture hard there. Um, so that's something to remember. Yes? You didn't use in Corinthians, ask your husband at home. Do you, is, isn't that, is that part of the culture? But if, if what about the women that aren't married? Right, so um, so maybe what he's doing there is talk, the question is, uh, what about women who aren't married in 1 Corinthians 14? Maybe what he's doing there is he's actually talking about married women. Right? And he's saying, you're shaming your husbands by challenging them with questions. 
in the in the assembly, and and you need to back off on that because this is shameful. And I would say even in our culture, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, if one spouse really challenges another in front of everybody else, I mean, yeah, that's a little awkward, right? So is that really showing Christian love? So I think that's I think that's probably what's going on there. Um, but remember, Corinth is where Prisca was and Phoebe was. <coughs> so um, so I you know I. And we don't want to take it too far, far and say that a married woman, and we don't know that Phoebe should have been married, Crisco was married, a married woman can't speak at all in some way. That's probably not what's going on. Yeah, uh, yeah we have time for. Uh, yeah, so, I just think you've had a chance. So, yeah, in the back. Did you, did you come across any sources, particularly in Corinthians, where uh, the reason, one of the reasons why you're silencing some of well, well, the group of women? Maybe the married woman was that they were so used to uh, being uh, in the temple where they had a voice. Maybe they were head of their own. Because there were many temples around. And you did find that women were to deep leaders, uh, leader role in these particular temples. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why he's silencing these, this particular group is because, you know, they, they, as you say, they need to learn first. Yeah. yeah, so the question is about um, what about women's involvement in the pagan religions in these cities like Corinth and Ephesus? Yeah, there's been a lot of research done on that, um, and especially in Ephesus uh, and, and in Corinth too, that one of the things that could be going on is that, that these pagan women who have converted to Christianity and become followers of Christ, they're not Jewish uh, women who have this long history of understanding how to worship the God of Israel, right? Um, and so they're coming with this baggage of how you do church, so to speak, uh, from a kind of pagan perspective, like maybe the, the cult of Artemis or some of these other pagan cults. And, um, and so that, that may be causing some problems, too, because they may be trying to do things the way it was done there. Um, I think that's probably true for men, too. Um, but maybe particularly true for women in a few pockets and a few places, or maybe you have a woman who has... Uh, become a follower of Christ who is very high up and involved in one of these cults and wants to kind of turn it, run the show <laughs> um, in a way that's not Christ-like. Uh, so yeah, that's, there's a lot of work that's been done on that. Um, so it's a great question. All right, I want to honor the time. I know people have places to go. But anyway, thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. And